I'm Floyd Hall, and today I'm joined by Charles Babb, venture capitalist, serial entrepreneur, and ex-video game producer and designer. Charles, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? Doing great. I'm glad we had some time to catch up, Charles. I know uh, these times are very uh, fleeting, and it's, it's very important that we take advantage of our time to cross paths and, and share a few moments on how we got to this point. Uh, and I say that from a, a standpoint of how you got to your point um, as as someone in the tech space and, you know, being open to sharing some perspective on your path and uh, really what what led you to where you are right now. So let, let's start at the beginning for you from from college, from undergrad, and then move forward. So talk about what your uh, what your goals were when you were in college, and really, what was what were some of those first steps that you took after college? Okay, uh, in college, uh, my background was in international relations, political science. I came from one of the one of those black families that wanted a lawyer in the family. We already had an engineer, we had a doctor, and <clears throat> I guess I was up to bat to be the lawyer. So I was pushed towards law when, deep in my heart, I wanted to go into the tech space. I wanted to be a video game producer and designer. But at Morehouse, I went into national relations uh, from a small town in Kentucky, Lexington, if anybody's familiar with Lexington. And I wanted to learn more about the world as well. You know, everybody has multiple interests. So I said, if I'm going to go to law, I'm going to go to international law because I want to learn more about the world. Uh, at Morehouse, I studied national relations. I was on academic scholarship, and I l- earned the Merle Study Abroad Scholarship, which was heralded in Morehouse to get the help pay for study abroad. But I also earned a fellowship called the International Affairs Institute for International Public Policy. Actually, let me repeat that: Institute for International Public Policy. For anybody that's undergrad, apply for it. That fellowship covered you to go to summer programs. You sacrifice your summers to go to grad school, and you went to Clark's International Affairs program, which is really strong, especially for people of the African diaspora. And then you choose to go to Berkeley, Michigan, Princeton, or Washington for a summer. And then after that, they pay for you to get serious, uh, intensive foreign language training from Middlebury, Vermont. Uh, then that fellowship propels to pay for you to go to grad school in the top 16 uh, uh, international fair grad schools. So they pay for everything. You just have to get accepted by the top 16. Number one, of course, is always Harvard or Yale or Princeton. So after that, I actually got accepted to, uh, did my LSAT, got accepted to Harvard Law and a PhD program at NYU in co- correlation with one another for international affairs. But then I realized I really didn't want to go to law school. So I instead I applied for the JET program before I graduated from Morehouse, got accepted, and that's the Japan Exchange Teaching Program. And then I went to Japan. And I was in Japan for two years as an assistant English teacher and the coordinator for international relations. Great, great experience ever. I did my study abroad in Japan. I went back to the city that I went to college then, and I enjoyed it. After that, I got accepted to the East-West Center's uh, uh, Asia-Pacific Leadership Program, APLP. 
And so I know it's a lot of acronyms right now, but everybody's is acronyms. And there I got a graduate certificate in Asia Pacific Literacy, where you know all the issues in Asia and the leadership. While I was there in Hawaii, I actually worked on films like Lost, uh, TV shows like Lost and ER and a couple of films that were coming through Hawaii as, as just an assistant producer. So then at that point, mm-hmm. or I, I would say at what point did gaming and technology become a larger part of your life? Uh, I've always been a tech head. Okay. I've always been a tech head. I think that's due to my older brother. We, I remember the Commodore VIC-20 came in for Christmas Day, and he started programming. And in order for me to play any of the games, I would have to read the line code in the magazine and actually program with him. So he'll program for like two hours, and he'll make me program for like 30 minutes. And I didn't know what any of it meant. I was just punching numbers and letters into, into the computer because I wanted to play this game that he was working on. So I've always been a gamer all my life, and I bought into all the gaming magazines. And I think it was when I returned to Los Angeles because I got hit with the Hollywood bug in Hawaii, you know. I'm participating with Hollywood stuff, but I'm not in Hollywood. And then I came to Hollywood and I I was in a couple of productions. I was in uh, the digital media and film television department of a company called Tokyo Pop. And I think that's where I was like, it's time to go make games. It's, it's the digital space was blowing up. People were making little app games and we were leaning to go that way. And I said, I want to make video games. So I started hitting up all the companies and they wanted to push me through their QA departments. But my financial security was not QA level at that point where I could take such a hit and start all over again. So I ended up going to grad school instead. Now, see, I thought initially that your gaming experience would have come from your time in Japan because I think initially you think about just the culture around gaming and where there's a lot of creativity I felt like that probably was was where you got it from but LA surprisingly enough was where you really got more uh, immersed into that culture yes okay yes. yes well in Japan there's a couple of hubs there's the technology hub in Osaka and one in in actually Tokyo but if you go around Japan, they're not used to computers. High schools don't have computer labs. People don't, they don't use big technology. They use small technology, mobile technology, such as their phones. And this is before we had the game on the phone that was complex. Everybody had Tetris on their phone, or everybody had uh, the Blockus game where you knock the blocks. But outside of that, there wasn't many games at all in Japan. And gaming was part of otaku culture, nerd culture in Japan. And so people never really openly bragged or enjoyed talking about playing games. Okay, so at this point now, you're in L.A., Mm -hmm. you are going, you finally have committed to to going to grad school. Mm -hmm. Now what? Uh, So I started looking for grad schools. Uh, And I was looking for uh, grad schools that was specifically about gaming. MIT is the one that comes up, and USC comes up, and Cornell comes up, NYU comes up. Guildhall comes up. And then there was this new program that was in Orlando at the University of Central Florida called the Florida Interactive Entertainment Academy. It was a 16-month program, and it was, they say it's super intense. It's like being in a studio. And I was like, well, let me apply to this program. And I applied to that program. Uh, At that time, I still had my scholarship at the Ivy. And I was like, well, let me go to do this program and see what happens. And... um, I went to the program, and day one, you hit the, the, the ground running. 
they basically devised it just like a studio. You learn everything as you're building the project the whole entire year. So fast forward from that experience mm-hmm. to working, uh, you worked at Activision, right? Yeah, I worked for Neversoft. Neversoft. Yeah. Which, okay, so so t- talk about some of the, the gaming titles that you've worked on um, after you left school in Florida and then going forward. Okay. Uh, I, I actually I did an internship at this game called this company called Gorilla Games. I worked on a cheerleading game, and I worked on a game called The Click after the book series. We just wrapped up on Hannah Montana, so I was on the very very tail end of that, the Hannah Montana game. But then I was there for only four months, and then I got hired by by Activision to work at NeverSoft. Um, I worked on Guitar Hero. That was my first title I worked on, and NeverSoft is such a unique experience. All those guys basically they. They grew up together. They became men. They all knew each other's families. It was 160 people, and the owners of the company, they were rock stars. They, they acted like rock stars. They seemed like rock stars. And so I was in that environment, and I managed the Guitar Hero store. That means I worked with directly with Activision Music on finding songs, creating track lists, creating songs. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it was... We find the songs, we listen to songs. I learned about rock music. I learned what the process was working with the design team on stemming out the song and talking to them about the song. I was I was in a producer role, so I uploaded the store every week. I saw all the sales numbers and I saw how well that property was doing over the years. So let's fast forward and maybe talk about well not not fast forward, but let's let's take a few steps forward and and talk about maybe going into the the venture capitalist role so what what did you learn from the gaming world that enabled you to springboard into venture capital um i i did my last job i went through sony playstation as well and i worked on probably every ps3 title over the past five years so if it started five years ago i worked on it and then i got hired by a company called spark unlimited and they worked with a group called Concept in Team Ninja in Japan. So they took me back back to my Japanese roots. I'm working with a creative direction office and a Japanese publisher and developer with an American company. So it brought it all back to a round circle. We shipped our product. We didn't have a new product in, in the pipeline. So we had to disband the studio. And it was a very, very strong studio team. And I think I was jaded from that. And... I said, well, I'm going to step out on my own. There's, there has to be a better model than the model we currently have in gaming. And so me and a, a couple of my associates got together and we formed a group called Fairchild Consortium. And it was a consortium where we did the developer end, we'll be the guys to negotiate the deals with people that want to build games and apps, anything interactive, we'll build it, and we'll build teams behind it. And that was the model. I happened to get into venture capital from that because there was a group called Harv's Investment Group. Brand new investment group, young uh, investor backing it, who happened to be friends of the Democrat Party. You know, um, they were favored by them. They're a Chinese group that came in and they needed a, a tech professional to help them. And one of the stipulations that the owner of the, of the investment group had was, I want this person to be young and know about gaming because I went into the gaming space. Me and him started developing this relationship and he said, hey, why don't you come join me as a partnership? You can still have Fairchild. I don't care what you do with that. But let's form a separate group called Harvest Interactive Media. And you run it 
I'll pay you for it and you have part ownership. I'm just going to give it to you. And let's just do this and invest into strong tech products that are really smart and let's help some minorities out that are really hungry for it. So, excuse me. So at this point, looking back at your career, Mm -hmm. it's been sort of a, of a, of a winding road. Yes. Into, into and, and in through the gaming space. So when I, or when we look at young engineering students, technology students, uh, anyone who has an interest in technology, how do we mentor them in a way in which their path can be maybe more laid out at the beginning? So you've kind of taken a really roundabout way. Yes. So if you were to give some some perspective and some some insight to someone else to say, well, this is what you should do first, second, and third. What would you say to those to those uh, individuals? Oh man, I I have um, I've been thinking about this question a lot because I think I did a. It took me, my journey was long. I enjoyed it, but I wish I could have streamlined it partially. And I'm not sure if I would be such a, a round character to me. But start out first, fall in love with math and science. Just fall in love with it. It doesn't, your grades don't matter. And you just need to know it. You just need to know how the world works. Um, math is just the adding, subtracting of things and estimating of, of distance and time. And just know that. And science is just understanding how things actually work. You know, they're sure we have a lot of equations and science gets really deep. But we just have to know why do planes fly? You know, I mean, we still, a lot of us think it's partially magic. But we, but there's lift. Just learn how lift, you don't have to know the exact equation. Just know how lift works. And um, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I tell everybody, you can't fail, but you can make mistakes. And... Mistakes are permanent if you don't correct them. So you just correct them. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think in this school, we do a lot of fail shaming. When we teach failure is a bad thing, instead of you just didn't get it right, we'll just practice it until you finally get it. And I think that's part of the issue. And I think those we, we, we shun science and math as they're difficult, and they're just languages. Math is a language. Um, then that goes into other languages. Read a lot of books. So... From that standpoint, and maybe jumping a few steps ahead to the early entrepreneurs or the the early want-to-be entrepreneurs or folks who are trying to get their first startup off the ground, what would be your suggestion to those individuals? Because they're out here trying to pitch an idea or several ideas or a product in a very difficult and competitive space so especially in in the technology space Mm -hmm. so what is your what is your advice to to those folks who are trying to get their startup to that next level um know a little business i tell everybody go to the small business association or administration and actually get some literature on um, how to run a business Uh, when you're pitching your idea ideas are always great Ideas, I can, there's a thousand ideas thrown at me every day. It's, can I see the business behind it? Because I don't want to invest into the product. I want to invest into the people. I want to say, if this product doesn't work, well, we can line up this one that uses the core competences we learned from the previous one. Um, In tech space, everybody pitches an idea and whatever they finish with is never what they pitched. It's zero percent fact. It's gonna you're gonna have a lot of deviation. You're gonna make a you're gonna have a lot of discovery. It's uh, 
hypothesis. I look at your pitch is just a hypothesis. And whatever you get at the end is the true answer. And that's what we want to see. But before we go into that, I want to be able to invest into the person. I want them to be able to tell me who they are. This is why it's going to work. And if it does, this doesn't necessarily work, this is what's going to work behind that. And I have some business sense to actually run this. And business sense doesn't mean just being able to calculate numbers. Business to me is being able to handle human resources. A good businessman is great at human resource. He knows how to hire, how to fire, how to apply pressure, how to pull back, release pressure for the team. And that's what you're looking for. Um, don't be afraid to share your idea. I think a lot of people have their ideas and they hold on to them for dear life. Instead of just practice your pitch all the time. You know, ask your friends, hey, I want to pitch something at you guys. And let them and run off, run off with them. They can be, they can give you good advice and bad advice, but you'll learn something. You'll learn something about your pitch and you'll get used to being in the habit of giving that pitch. Because sometimes you'll have the minute opportunity opens up and it's only open for a minute. And you have to be able to give that answer to somebody that says, okay, you got a minute with me, go. And you have to be able to get that idea out. Then you have somebody say, okay, let's talk. And you have to keep a conversation about your pitch for like 30 minutes. You know, so your pitch shouldn't be a five-minute pitch. It should be something that you're really passionate about. You can truly explain in one minute to an hour. Let's talk about maybe a third group here mm -hmm. and, and maybe focus on policy administrators from, I guess, a government standpoint mm -hmm. or maybe just institutionally. Going from STEM to STEAM and having some conversation around what both of those mean, how do we further advance STEM and STEAM education on a larger scale? On a larger scale? Honestly, STEM, for people that don't know, is science, technology, engineering, math. And I think we should just get, away, get rid of that term. STEM is, I think, archaic when we thought we were, when America thought they were producing so many artists that we wanted to focus everybody into the sciences. And I think we should just run with STEAM. Uh, and that's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Uh, if you look at any great discovery in American history, it was backed by a scientist, but that person understood art. They had an art understanding. I mean, Albert Einstein had an art understanding. Even Steve Jobs has an art understanding. His love for music and what he knew about music is amazing. And I, I want us to look at we have to build programs starting at like four years old, five years old. Be it a set of Legos or Diplo blocks that starts it. Allowing, don't allowing, stop saying no to children and let them experience the world. If they're not killing anything, it's okay. It's okay. They're learning about the world. They're not killing or hurting anything. Let them learn about the world. And I think we have to have schools that teach that. It's all about discovery. In discovery, you make mistakes. You make mistakes. Um, we have a thing I know in, in, in Scrum, development methodology, fail fast and get to the answer quickly. So anything you're going to fail at is like, oh, that didn't work. Let's find something else that's going to work really fast. Oh, that didn't work. Let's find something else. And eventually you'll get your answer. You know, the answer is always in the equation. So you just have to figure out the equation and make sure you can get to the answer. If you could name maybe one or two startup companies that you think are doing it right or that you're just a fan of just for our research purposes or you know we can follow their their uh their uh, progress if there are one or two startups that you, you you think are are good companies to just investigate uh name some name some okay the first one i that i could say that is an investment that we went into that i cherish is smile time 
And Smile Time is presenting a platform similar to Twitch or to a YouTube or a Skype. And they're just doing it right. I mean, their leadership, uh, Alex, I remember my first meeting with Alex. And it was a warmth there. There was a brotherhood. Like, Alex would mention what Smile Time was to me and the way he said it made me say, I don't care what it is. I'm backing you as a person. Like, you as a person, I'm going after. It, what you're doing is disruptive. It's brave. It's bold. And I have to uh, get behind that. And Smile Time is a video live streaming concept that not only allows you to live stream and look at one person and have a minor chat in the corner, it's going to pull up to six to eight people on the screen. You can click on each one of them and have a personal conversation or have a group conversation with them. So I can play a video game, I can be streaming my game, and everybody could be watching me, and I can literally interact with everybody on the screen and be in the chat at the same time. It's like bringing everybody into one living room. And I think that is the future um, of, of streaming technologies. Because I think even Netflix could benefit from something like this. Where me and a friend, I start a movie on my screen and he can pop up in his living room or she can pop up in her living room. We can all sit there and watch it together and have the same experience. And I think they're doing it correctly. Um, another company, I'm, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to say Snapchat is doing it correctly. I mean, they had ups and downs and people are gravitating to them and what they're doing. But then they got dosed with their, their plan of their future building. And it's amazing what they're trying to do. And uh, the ownership was like, you know what? We're just going to own up to this. Yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do more on top of this. And matter of fact, we're going to run harder now to get there. Because everybody wants to be us. Now they see our plan. All we have to do is just run harder. And I think that's really powerful. Um, I have one of the companies. Of course, you know, the usual player Spotify is doing it right. I think I have issues with some of Spotify's things, but uh, the way they treat the artists, how their payments out to artists is sort of wrong. I was hoping they would be more independent and more artist-supportive so they don't have to go to labels. Artists are willing to dole over their music to them. I think they have to figure that out, but I think they're doing it right for the most part. Big plans for the future or big plans for how you see the future? To uh, me, I think the future is going to go into virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, there's a lot of companies fighting for that space, such as Visionary LA. Uh, what else is fighting for that space? Oculus Rift. And everybody's investing into VR. And I think VR and AR is going to change how we experience. Right now, there's two formats. There's a virtual reality where it plugs you into the world, and there's augmented reality that plugs holographic images in your world. And I think the company that figures out how to marry the two best is going to be the winner. And I think that's going to be the future of things. You know, um, what else I can say? Independence. I think any platform or service that can create a person to be an independent person and build on what they are and who they are without the need of being meshed and grinded into a company is going to help. So anything that can open source music development is going to be big. We have it in software where things are open source. But I think the next level of music is going to be open source music, where we're going to have a major artist throw their album online and have people build on it. And that's how they're going to make their money. They're all going to share their music. And I think it's going to be that first artist that says, like a Kanye West who throws an album up there with his minimalistic production and his vocals and have everything stemmed out properly and say, go. 
And if you put it on my network, I'm going to share the profits with you. If your version gets downloaded, we're going to share it. I think that's going to be the, the big step. Just any, that's going to be the first independent move, and I'm throwing the music industry. But I think that's going to happen with movies and everything. Go. Let's make this open source as possible. Charles Babb, venture capitalist, technologist, ex-video game producer, lover of technology and all things surrounding it. Charles, thank you so much for your time. I Thanks, appreciate Roy. it. I appreciate it.